Today is uh, May 17th. It is 2015. We've already had quite a worship service, but I promise it's going to continue. Somebody say amen in the house of God. If you drug yourself in here planning to sleep through half the service, it will not work. You are about to be challenged. We want to start with 2 Timothy 3.16. Our message today is called Tanakh Become Flesh. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed. Somebody say God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Oh man, if you leave out any part of that, you're leaving out something that is useful, something that is for your equipping. In any good message, in any good pastoral relationship, there should be teaching. There should be rebuking. There should be correcting. And above all else, training in righteousness. We are not looking for you to sit on your salvation and throw money at us to appease your conscience. In this church, we are bent in every possible way, thrown our our hat totally into the ring or completely in the boat of being trained in righteousness. Our job is to prepare you for your works of service. And in the name of Jesus, we will accomplish what God called us to do, which means we are successful in the kingdom when you are walking successfully in the kingdom. Anybody want to glorify God today? Do you want to walk rightly in the kingdom or do you only want to go just a satisfactory distance in the eyes of your peers? Have you settled for mediocrity when you can have the supernatural? A religious rut is so easy to get into. It doesn't matter what your tradition is. You can come from one of the ecclesiastical backgrounds. You can come from a very ecumenical church. Or you could come from a crazy Pentecostal or charismatic church. But before long, the nature of our beast, our flesh, is that if after the third song is usually when a prophecy comes, if after the second song is when an offering is, before long that's what you expect and that's what you Get, but God is anything but predictable. His spirit has the right to move in any way that he wants to. And the word of God will teach us, will rebuke us, will correct us, and above all else, train us in righteousness. I want to move past with all of my being the idea that we are simply declared righteous, but we don't have to actually be righteous. I think it is a damnable lie. I think it is a half-truth elevated to the place that it has become an out-and-out heresy. If Jesus Christ has credited you with righteousness, then you have an obligation to walk in righteousness. And every time that you fall short of the right thing He has told you to do, you are to fall on your face and say, Enable me by your Spirit. And He is able. Somebody say, He is able. Whomever the Son says free is free indeed. Can you say amen to that? Then we do not have to be slaves to sin any longer. Take them on. Take them on in wholesale fashion. Declare absolute annihilation of sin in your life. And do whatever it takes to win because nothing else matters. Verse 17. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be partly equipped? Anybody want to go to war about 30% full of ammunition? We are in a life and death struggle. 
And we have to get beyond playing church. Little girls play tea party. My little one sits her Barbies out and has a whole family dynamic in a miniature house we built for her on the second floor of, of our own home. It has toilets and sinks and they, they do everything that you do in a normal house with these little plastic Barbies. But that's not a real house. This is how most people have approached the kingdom. They've approached it with all of the right furniture, all of the right equipment, all of the right words, but they're really just playing at it. Friends, we can't play war. We're already at war. And if you don't recognize it, if you don't wake up, if you don't run with perseverance, the race marked out for you, then you are already losing. Does anybody want to lose? Do you want to throw in the towel now? See, I want to win. I believe Jesus Christ has called us more than conquerors. I think we're victorious in him. And the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to win. Oh, man. What would it be like to see the word of God become flesh? I want to talk to you about the word Tanakh for a minute. Tanakh is an, an acronym. It's an abbreviation formed by the initial components of a phrase or word. So if you say NASA... People understand that that's short for National Aeronautics and Space Association. There are many uh, acronyms in our daily speech that we see everywhere. Ford means fix or repair daily. <laughs> acronyms are a part of our life. And they've been a part of almost every civilization that was advanced enough to read and write. The Hebrew culture is no exception. The word Tanakh, the first letter T, stands for Torah. The vowel was added so that you could make the acronym. The letter N stands for Nevim or prophets. The letter K stands for Ketuvim or writings. The idea here is that in saying the word Tanakh, you are saying the law, the prophets, and the writings, or Torah, Ketuvim, uh, Torah Nevim, and Ketuvim. Those may sound like foreign words to you. I mean, they are. We're, we are Western people and this is an Eastern book, but they were not foreign words to the writers of the book. Did you know that the Jewish people order the 39 books of the Old Testament differently than you do? I'm just curious. If I came over to your house and you showed me your family's genealogical records... You showed me maybe an ancient family Bible that somebody had written down the generations in or a photo album. How would you feel if I said, I don't like this photo album here. Let's put it there. I'd rather take this one and put it. What? Do I have the right to come into your house and reorganize your photo albums? That'd be offensive, wouldn't it? What if I said, I really don't like your name. Your name's hard to pronounce. So I'm going to change it to something that I like. How would you feel about that? Well, we're not going to opine it all day because I am a pork-eating Gentile. There's not an ounce of Jewishness in me. In fact, I come from a long, illustrious line of drug addicts and criminals and rednecks and people that drive cars with back tires that are wider than the front tires and drink things out of paper bags. So there is no illustrious genealogy here. And, I think it is unreasonable that we take the Hebrew scriptures, put them in a different order, and give the books different names. 
I think it is unreasonable that we take the New Testament names of books as well and give them English titles, and yet I can't change it. It's what we've inherited. But we can educate ourselves and say, if God designed a society, what was he trying to tell us by his design before man began to monkey with it? Are you interested in God's design today? Or would you rather just do it like the popular Christians do so that we can go on Oprah Winfrey and have the world love us and hell love us too because we are not a threat at all? I would so much rather be equipped with the things of God and at war with the enemy because Jesus Christ said, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you see churches that are being overcome by the gates of hell, it's because they've made a treaty. I've made no treaty. And I expect that you've made no treaty. We are at war. The three parts of the Older Testament, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, the law, prophets, and writings. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus endorses them. He didn't have to endorse them. It's what was commonly accepted in his day. Everybody knew it the same way that everybody in this country used to know that there was a declaration of independence and a constitution. The way everybody used to know that public servants were just that, servants of the public. But over time, it's possible to corrupt a thing. I think we're living in days of corruption. Jesus was not stating something to teach it. He was stating something that they knew As an endorsement, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law, that's the Torah, the prophets, that's in the Nevim. And this word here, even in Greek, is not Psalms, it's writings. But because it refers to the Psalms as the largest book in it, they translated it Psalms. It's the Greek cognate for the Hebrew word ketuvim. Jesus is saying, fulfilled what is written about me in the Torah, the Nevim, and the ketuvim. He is endorsing the actual order of the books and their contents, showing us that the 39 books of the Older Testament, he considered scripture. Can you say amen for that? This means there's no question about Esther. This means that there's no question about Song of Songs, even if you don't like it. And your Puritan mind thinks that it shouldn't be in the Bible. It means that God has the right to design His book the way that He wants to design it. And we shouldn't monkey with it. In fact, if we considered adjusting ourselves rather than adjusting His book, perhaps we would have better outcomes. I want to talk to you about the Torah for a minute. The Torah or the law. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Or as it was written in the original language, Bereshit, Shemot, Ve'ikra, Be'midbar, and Devarim. Say, well, what difference does that make? When we say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it carries no meaning with it. I mean, to you, they're just phonetic sounds. But when you say Bereshit, it means in the beginning. When you say Shemot, it means these are the names. When you say Ve'ikra, it means he called. When you say Be'midbar, it means in the desert. When you say Devarim, it means his words. It literally says in the beginning, these are the names he called in the desert and gave his word. Oh my goodness, you don't have to get past the first section of the Bible before the story of the Bible never changes. 
You want to talk about a man who had an encounter with God, and I'm going to tell you from the beginning of his life, God knew his name. He was calling to him, but the man was wandering in the disobedience of a desert. But when God's word enters your situation, it changes everything. Oh, when the word of God becomes real in your heart, real in your life, when it becomes tangible to you, you can't go on the way that you've always gone. You can no longer say, I know it's true, but I'm going to do something else. When it becomes real to you, when the Tanakh becomes like flesh and blood standing in front of you, it has a way of capturing your heart and capturing your soul. I say that you should be possessed of the word of God. So filled with the Holy Spirit of God that it's overflowing from you. He is overflowing from you. So in love with the Word of God that you would rather talk about it than the latest movie. Oh, church, what would it be like if we loved the Word like we're supposed to love the Word? The Torah itself communicates a message. By the time you move on to the Nevim, it might surprise you to know what is included in the section called the prophets. Joshua is considered in the prophets. Judges, Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, also 1st and 2nd Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Now, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel might not surprise you, but is anybody surprised to find Joshua included among the prophets? There's a reason for it. Then we go through the 12 so-called minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. It turns out that these prophets all have a similar theme. And there's a reason that they're together even from Joshua forward. Tell me Joshua looked right at the people and said, If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, don't do it. But as for me and my household, we're going to. Oh, we will serve the Lord. They said, he said, no, you're not able. Oh, no, we'll serve the Lord. Now I've seen you. You're not able. Oh, no, we'll serve the Lord. Very well. You've said these three times you'll serve the Lord. It'll be a testimony against you. Tell me he wasn't a prophet. The prophets all have a unified theme. It has to do with what brings captivity upon a person. They were all pointing out that sin brings judgment. Oh, this nation needs to learn that better than at any time in its history. The judgment of God has come upon us and it will only get fuller and fuller in this nation. We need repentance. We need repentance with all of our heart. We actually believe that the world itself owes each one of us something. Rather than that we were put in a fallen creation to restore it, we owe something to the world. God put Adam in a garden to work the soil. And we were never supposed to stop working the soil of our own hearts and the environment around us. Christianity that doesn't affect the world outside the church is not really Christianity. Tell me what would happen if the 12 little Jewish boys that Jesus called simply wanted every day to be Friday? What if they wanted their best life now? What if they wanted the kind of foolishness that we're seeing where people are buying multi-million jets in the name of Jesus? What if that's what they wanted? The gospel never would have reached you. But they loved their lives 
not so much as to shrink from death. Of them it's true what the psalmist said. Precious is the sight of the saint's death in my sight. It's precious because they prove the lordship of Jesus Christ every day in their actions. And so the kingdom of God was among us. I say when you take the word seriously, when the word abides in you, abides in you to the extent that it is controlling your actions as the Holy Spirit breathes life into it, then the word of God is still tabernacling among us today. The Torah is supposed to come to life The warning of the Nevim is supposed to come to life. Supposed to come to life even in us, even now. When you look at the Ketuvim, the writings, these span Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther. Daniel didn't make it into the prophets. He is in the writings. Ezra, Nehemiah, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You have to ask why. In the next slide, you'll see why. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, largely cover the founding of Israel. They cover how the nation was formed. They cover that God birthed it, and it could only be birthed by God. What if when we opened the Bible, we weren't just looking at the creation of the earth. We were looking at the creation of a new man, a new nation. It started with a man and moved to a family. And then it became a nation. And they're supposed to infect the whole world with God's goodness. What if that's how we looked at the opening section of the Bible? It would probably be impossible to come away with some of the crazy false doctrines that are out there that teach a do-nothing, worth-nothing Christianity. When you move to the Nevim, they cover the time period from the promised land and into captivity of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The unified theme of the prophets was even after you've been created as a new man, a new family, and a new nation, sin would be your ruination if you let it reign in you. The unified theme of the prophets was a warning to those who were in the faith, not those who were outside of it. We're pretty sure that every parable is dealing with someone outside the church because we're safe inside the church. We're pretty sure that every stern warning in the Bible is for someone other than us. The whole theme of the prophets is a warning to the people of God that if you willfully disobey God, even though He's adopted you, even though He's called you, even though He's given you promises that are irrevocable, you still bring ruination upon your life when you sin. That's the theme of every one of the prophets. Oh, could our theology be straightened out just from the first two sections of the Bible? Perhaps that's why Satan has sought so hard to obscure it and make everything Jewish dirty in a Gentile mind and slur God's holy race with monikers like Christ killers. If the Jewish race as a whole rejected Christ, how do you have a Jewish book in your lap that tells the story of Jesus Christ? You think the Apostle Paul was born a Christian? (laughs) The Apostle Paul is what is known as a completed Jew. A Jew who sees the truth of Messiah in Yeshua HaMashiach. And we learn from him every time we read his epistles. 
What could we learn today if we restored the Jewishness of the faith? If you can't go that far, what would we learn today if you actually believed that this book in its very first part is about a new creation that starts with a man and moves to the man's family and turns the family into a nation used by God to touch the world? What if you didn't get past the first section before you accepted that truth as paramount above all others? Do you think we could get here and pray, Oh, Lord, bless me, Susie, Johnny, us four and no more. Do you think we could really have the kind of chaos going on in the body called hyper grace? Do you really think that we could have the silliness floating around that we have? Most of our denominations were formed to combat the social evils and heresies that were prevalent in a society hundreds of years ago. And we wonder why those arguments are stale today. Because we've accepted new heresies and new lies today. And what has been set in stone and has square wheels cannot pivot to address them. But the Spirit of the living God has always been able to address the evils of the day. It's what He does. He trains us in righteousness. Oh, that the church could take off its stone underwear. It's made it cavemanish, archaic, when it was supposed to be a living, breathing, vibrant warrior in the house of God. Church, has your faith become stale? It was prophesied the other night, and rightly so, during one of our home meetings, that there was a spirit of discouragement on people. And that was true. Sometimes it's tangible. Why do you think the enemy's trying to discourage you? Because you've become dangerous to him. He would leave you alone if you were no threat to him. When you are dangerous to the enemy, he's at war with you and you at war with him. By the way, let's clear it up. How do you get rid of a spirit of discouragement? You take the next daring leap of faith for Jesus Christ. And as he comes through for you, how can your spirits not be elevated? I never saw a person get healed sitting on their salvation, hiding in a room, reading privately to themselves. Especially if what they're reading is not even the Word of God. I just needed an escape from what? Reality? Church, this is serious time. You know when it gets serious? When your sons rush to the hospital. You know when it gets serious? When somebody knocks on your door and wants to put you in jail simply because you believe something that for millennia the world has accepted but is so insane today that they think they've got a new idea. Redefine our genders. Oh, man. This time period might go down in history as fruity pebbles. This is incredible. And the church of God has nothing to say about it. This can't be. The Word of God addresses it on every page. How can we be full of the Word of God and not know how to live in our time? The Ketuvim, the writings, even Daniel within the Ketuvim, they tell us how to live a faithful life within our historical context. What does it look like when you're carried off to Babylon because your nation has sinned? How do you live in a setting like that? Daniel shows us you maintain your integrity because you love the Lord. Better the vegetables with the righteous than meat with the wicked. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teach us that. 
What does it look like when you have a despotic dictator that is trying to rule your country and the world? We learn this when we study Nebuchadnezzar. All of the writings were to teach you what it looks like when you have to walk faithfully after you've been created new in the Lord, after you've experienced the pain in judgment of sin. They teach you how to walk right with God. When you're thinking about these things, let us consider this. Before you make it out of the Torah, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Shema, Ya Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart. Say heart. heart. With all your soul. Say soul. soul. With all of your strength. Say strength. How could you not think of these things as the center of your being, your spirit, your heart, your soul, the mind, will, and emotions of a man, the link and the bridge between your spirit and your flesh? How could you not think of strength as your flesh with all of your being? Love the Lord. No part of you divided because the Lord is not divided even if He's many parts. What if the very structure of the Tanakh was meant to teach us how to do this? That when a man becomes a new creation, he's supposed to grow into a family of God, supposed to grow into a nation of God, supposed to affect the world. And when he experiences sin, it brings judgment. But even in the midst of judgment and sin, the Lord is faithful and will show you how to live a righteous life. What if he was trying? What if he was succeeding and we are failing in showing us the right way to live in our time right now? When you think of the Torah, consider... Give us the next slide. When you think of the Torah, consider this verse that comes from the section of the Hebrew Bible called the Torah. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. If you can't get a heart right, it doesn't matter what restrictions you place. I've put net nanny on computers. I've put passwords on computers. I've set up systems of accountability. But until the heart of a person changes, you cannot break their habits. A person can cry over their addiction. They can snot all over you. They can come and ask for prayer every day. But until God's supernatural work is done in their heart, the addiction is never broken. And it doesn't matter whether it's an addiction to a soap opera or an addiction to a mind-altering substance. By the way, those are roughly equivalents. The Bible begins with the thing that is most important in a human being. How to address your very center. In Hebrew, the word heart is lieb. It doesn't just mean the thing beating in your chest. It means who you are, the very center of you. From it, they translated lieb into Greek cardia, where we get cardiac for surgery. But in the Greek cities, cardia was, was a street that went right down the center of a city. Most cities are defined by some thoroughfare. Like... There's some streets in any city you don't want to live on. 
They're usually named the same names in every city. There's usually a main drag in every city. Well, in a human being, the center of you, the part that defines you is your spirit. It is your leave, your heart. And God wanted, he gave his Torah to incline our hearts towards his. Do you have a heart for the Lord today? No, no, we're not going to live with that. If only three people have a heart for the Lord today, then all of you should stand up and walk out of the room because we will fill it with those whose hearts are possessed of the living God. We have a responsibility. Do you have a heart to the Lord? Oh, come on, do you want to serve Him? Listen, we're not going to sit and soak. This is not sage on a stage time. I'm not qualified and neither are you for that. What we're going to do is be ordinary men moved by an extraordinary God because of His extraordinary Word. Do you have a heart that wants to rise to the challenge? He says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Can you hear the living God going, oh, that their hearts would be inclined? He is yearning. And the response to that yearning was to give you His Word. Oh, does it lie undisturbed sitting on the back shelf of your car since last Sunday? Church, the Word of God equips us. And men who rightly handle the Word of God equip us. And the Holy Spirit of God who reminds us of the Word of God, He equips us. Oh, how rich is your diet in the Word of God. When you reach the Nevim, the prophets... They address the soul of a man. Having been made a new creature in Christ, the center of me being renewed. I have these things at work in me. My mind doesn't always want to agree with what God is telling me to do. It's sometimes subject even to the cravings of the flesh. It's like there's a tug of war going on. Paul described this in the 6th chapter of Romans. And volumes have been written about it. And we can write about it and write about it, but we can't understand it for you. I mean, it's incredible. Theologians love to write about the chapter, and when you read their conclusions, they've entirely missed it most of the time. Paul was not free from the struggle any more than you're free from the struggle. He's telling you how to win the struggle. You're free from it when you're glorified. Until then, we're meant to struggle. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah, which, by the way, is from the Nevim, from the prophets... He says, but what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. He's standing in the midst of judgment because of sin. What can he say? He's admitting it. He comes to the conclusion. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Does sin cause anguish in your soul? Oh man, when you feel the victim of sin... It causes anguish in your soul. Anybody ever stolen something you love? Anybody ever hurt someone that you thought was precious? One of my children could barely stand. Another child shoved them so hard that their feet came off the ground. Head first on the concrete. It's hard to explain the feeling. I would never want to hurt a child. But I wanted to hurt the child and everybody in his family and everybody that loved their family. All in that one moment. Anguish in my soul. He had anguish in his soul because of the sin. 
says, Lord, by such things men live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. The prophets taught us that judgment comes when sin comes, but forgiveness can come too. By the way, those words are written to people who are already saved. The nation of Israel was adopted as God's son the day they came out of Egypt. The blood of the lamb delivered them just like you. They crossed over from death to life in a census because God said to. They're not some other weird entity. They're the prototype for the faith that we walk in. And yet we think that because we prayed a miserable prayer at an altar that we never intended to keep, we can live like hell all the way to heaven. It's never been true. It's not true now. It wasn't true then. And it won't be true tomorrow, no matter what the salesmen are selling you. Listen to me, if you sit in sin, sitting in this church now, I don't care who your mother is. I don't care who your daddy is. I don't care what the consequence to me is. You need to know, nothing will save you other than a regenerative work of Jesus Christ in your heart. The Torah tells us that. The prophets tell us that. And you should know that it can't be faked. He will know the difference. You should know that even if you fool the men around you, you do not fool him. Either your heart is alive with passion for the living God or you still sit in your sin. What do you think it means to separate sheep and goats? We think he's going to separate those outside the church and those inside the church. No, among those that think they are his flock, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And by the way, it's based on what they did and did not do because your actions follow your beliefs. That's another lie of our time. I can believe one thing and do something entirely different. How many of you wives would believe your husband loves you if he beat you every day? How can you know what's in his heart? Do you see how ridiculous this is? Jesus is worth so much more. He's worth all of your heart. He's worth all of your soul. And He's worth all of your strength. Speaking of strength, by the time we get to the writings, the Ketuvim, listen to what the writings say. Starting with Psalm 18.1. I love you, O Lord, my... You're only as strong as you lean on the Lord. The truth is you are pathetically weak just like me. But He inside of you is more than a conqueror. You've been told you have to sin, that we're just sinners, and that it's inevitable. No, if you're leaning on the Lord's strength, there is no sin that cannot be beaten. Not one. Oh, why is there not an amen in the house of God for that? We love our own sin and we hate everybody else's. Oh, this is so sad, church. The writings lead you to a place where how do I walk this thing out? And so by the time you get to Psalm 33, 16, he says, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Today, perhaps that should say no CEO and no Mercedes Benz. 
But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. What is the strength of your life? It is your dependency upon the Lord. Why are the poor rich in faith? Because they don't have a choice but to depend on Him. And yet, we're surrounded by a gospel that wants to be rich. Why? What would you do with your riches? You want to know what you would do with your riches? You would do exactly what you're doing right now with the money that you have. If you're honoring God with what you have now, you'll honor Him when you're given more. If you are not honoring God right now, you certainly will not honor Him when you're given more. I'm going to tell you it is a trap, a temptation to fall into that many want to get rich. And worse yet, they use the Word of God as a shovel to earn their livings. It's sin. He deserves all of your heart. He deserves all of your soul. He deserves all of your strength. And the truth is, you don't have any that He didn't give to you. Oh, church, do you hear me? What is the way to win? What is the way to survive temptation? Well, the Torah teaches us that God does a regenerative work in your heart. It's like when Abraham was called of Him and he began to obey and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Torah teaches us that God takes those faithful men who teach their children's children what is right. That you become a family of God. That you will always grow. That the leaven works through the loaf. That the faithful are always centrifugal. In fact, He'll make you into a mighty nation on the earth, a contender among all the peoples of the planet. In fact, He will make you a prince that walks with God. That's what the Torah teaches us. What do the prophets teach us? They teach us that no matter what God's promised you, no matter what you've achieved so far in the kingdom, if you turn away from Him, it brings judgment. And if you sit in judgment now, repentance will bring forgiveness. This is why they were restored after Sennacherib. This is why they were restored after the Babylonians. This is why they were restored. This is why Israel exists even to this day. There's forgiveness after sin. The writings are to teach you how to walk faithfully with the Lord your God. The writings are there to teach you to be a living breathing, walking Torah. Tanakh. Are you already bored? I noticed that we sit through three and a half hour movies. And if you get a little popcorn and a Coke, everybody's just happy. But you can be fed manna that falls from heaven and despise it because you didn't have to work to get it. I want to tell you where we go eat after church is not nearly as important as what we eat inside church. I want to tell you that hearing a word and doing the word are not the same thing. I want to tell you that not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. And we live in a society that says, oh, you'll be surprised how many are there that you didn't think of. That is a damnable lie. Jesus himself said, few would be saved. Few. You're going to be surprised at who did not make it. You will not be surprised at who made it and you didn't think so because a tree is known by its fruit. No matter how hard our modernists try to redefine that truth, it is truth. And it's always been truth. A quick sketch of the Jewish educational system will show you how God ingrained this in the hearts of the children. Rambam, Moshe Maimonides, didn't live until the 11th century A.D. 
And yet commenting on the Jewish educational system all the way back to Babylon, he says every person in Israel is obligated to be engaged in Torah learning, whether one is poor or wealthy, whether one is whole in body or afflicted with suffering, whether one is young or one is old and feeble, even poor person who is supported by charity and goes from door to door seeking benevolence. Even the man supporting his wife and children. Everyone is required to find a set time during the day and night to study Torah. As it was said, you shall go over it again and again, day and night. Joshua 1.8 Church, if a man who was not saved by Jesus Christ, if a man who was not filled with the Spirit of God felt this way about God's Word, how can we, filled with the Spirit of God, saved by the blood of Jesus, think less of the Word? You can disregard Rambam if you want to, but I admire him because he did more with less. He had less revelation and had more obedience. What happens when our level of education, our level of blessing becomes an indictment against our level of obedience. What do we do? Oh, we have to repent. The Jewish educational system of the first century, Josephus remarks about it. And when he does, he says about education that it is not seen as a luxury or even an option. He's speaking about the time that Jesus was a little boy. Education was the key to survival. The Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you lost everything. They could look at the days in which Israel lost the word of God and see what happened to Israel and they knew. He then added these words, above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. How could it possibly be hard to get people to work in children's church, Pastor Sutherland? The entire salvation of the human race depends upon what we teach them. And could we really act like it's a curse to have to go spend time in children's church? Well, of course we can. Because we live in a society that thinks it's a curse to have a baby. We'd rather kill them. We live in a society that thinks that your BMW and your job and what that job gets you and the fact that your body doesn't have to go through those things, that that's a bigger blessing than completing the body of Christ. This is sickness. It's madness. I heard a man on TV the other day speaking with a feminist, and he laughed and said, you're miserable. You should get married, have some kids, you might be happy. And I hear Christian women that are upset with that idea. Are you kidding me? When did we get to a place in the church of the living God when you could exalt their career? Above the honor of having children, all generations will call Mary blessed. Do you know why? She birthed the Christ. There is no career that competes with that. A woman in this church was standing in a checkout line the other day. And the cashier said to her, oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom? Oh, dear God, if I had been there. She said, what do you do all day? You must be bored. How could you say that to a woman holding a four-month-old? You have to be possessed of someone else's mind. Said, no, she's a real mom. She's devoted all of her attention, all of her time, to the only thing that matters, the next generation storming the gates of hell. Amen. 
If you've embraced a feminism idea that says that it is demeaning to do what God says we should do, then it is satanic and you should reject it. And by the way, I've never met a woman who was in her middle ages that was happy with feminist ideals. Ever. It doesn't matter that the churches don't preach against it anymore. And if you don't like it, then you can take it up with the Word of God and me. That would be just fine. I've never been scared of a woman. Not now, not ever. Despite all of our efforts to say men and women are equal, I'll have a bench press contest with any of you any day. Equal in worth does not mean equal in function. You need to come to your senses. We were made differently for a reason. And they honor and glorify God. Corinthians 11 says so plainly, the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man. That's God's design. So, oh, well, it's archaic. Well, yes, it's archaic. God's the ancient of days. I want to suggest to you that you should not have a problem with the design. You have a problem with sin within the design. I want to suggest to you that the very same chapter goes on to say man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man. We were made as two halves of one calling. How can we despise our half? Our church is often described as masculine. Well, it better be. But that doesn't mean that it's not all so full of beautiful femininity. The strongest male leaders in the world appreciate their essential Absolutely indispensable easers. Pastor Sutherland preached a fantastic Mother's Day message. He referenced a Hebrew word called resh heth mem, compassion. God is compassion. The word is actually womb-like. So how could God, who is male, be womb-like? No, God is whole. He's above that division. He's totally capable all of the time. We need each other. Look at your neighbor and say, we need each other. Oh, anybody that thinks differently is deluded. Don't you let the devil so twist your mind that you hear strong male leadership and you think that's against you. It was meant to be the shade that covers you. Even as Christ covers me. Was it such a bad thing when men opened doors for women? Was it such a bad thing to be treated as cherished? Do you really have to become a pig to be equal with a pig? Oh, man. We've so departed from the culture that created the Bible that we don't recognize utter nonsense, totally devoid of wisdom when we see it. We can even argue about whether people were born sinners or not. Were you born gay? Well, you were born a sinner. Were you born transgendered? You were born a sinner. Were you born an adulterer and a philanderer? You were born a sinner. Disease stock, every one of you. That's why the Torah starts with how to have a regenerative work. How to have your heart and life changed. It's why the Nevim tell you, a one-time experience with God will not cut it. That's why the writings go on to tell you how to consistently walk faithfully before your God. The Jewish educational system takes us through three houses of study. In Psalm 78, it so clearly outlines one a generation directing the next. In the interest of time, I'll let you take that note. And I'm going to post all of these notes online for you. 
The Jews believed this so strongly that in the first century, in Bet Sefer, the house of the book, they took any child, six to ten years old, and they used the Torah. They said, memorize these five books. Let it get down into your heart. Know what God requires and how far you are from that requirement so you can say, oh, that my heart would be inclined to follow you. The same way that's God's desire. When the children would arrive, they would write the names of the book on a tablet made of bread. They would dip it in honey and let the child eat it so that the word of God could be sweet to him. Oh, man. What if you were raised in that society? Might you have a head start? Somewhere around 10 to 14 years old, in addition to having already learned the Torah, you would go on to learn all of the prophets. And truthfully, you would learn the writings too during that time period, though you might not know how to walk them out. In Bet Talmud, the house of learning, you learn how to get your mind, will, and emotions in line with your spirit. By the time you moved on to Bet Midrash, the house of study and understanding, from 14 to 30, you learned how as a new creation adopted by God with a newly inclined heart and a determined mind, will, and soul to walk faithfully before your God within your historical context. The way God designed the Bible is the way He designed you with a heart, soul, and strength. And every part of it is supposed to affect your heart, your soul, and your strength. You say, wow, the New Testament's all I need. The New Testament rests on top of the Older Testament. When you read 2 Timothy 3.16 earlier, what did you think we were talking about? They didn't have a New Testament yet. You don't have a codified 27 books of the Newer Testament until almost the year 300. I'm not diminishing the New Testament. I'm telling you that it is the pinnacle that stands on top of the building that is the Older Testament. Please don't think that you can ignore three quarters of the work and get your theology correct in only the last third. Say, well, we're a New Testament church. Well, the actual New Testament church studied their Old Testament because they didn't have a New Testament yet. Think on it for a second. This is lunacy. We have the nerve to actually pass out Bibles that don't even contain the Older Testament. Oh, those people do good work. Yes, many of you do, and I love you for it. And it is stupidity to hand out Bibles that do not contain all of the Bible. What gives you the right to excerpt God's Word, to redact it? Think we don't have anti-Jewish seeds and we don't even know it? Tell somebody, well, this is the really important part. Perhaps that's why they misunderstand the really important part. They walked in in the last scene of a play not having any idea what it took to get there. All right, let's see if we can pull an analogy that you're sure to understand. If you watched the last five minutes of Inception, would you understand the movie? But you saw the really important part. Could you have some misconceptions about it? Oh, church, this was not true 150 years ago. Read the Puritans. Read the Quakers. Read the Great Awakening in this country. They were not New Testament-centric. They preached the entire canon. 
They preached it all. They plowed the ground and plowed the ground and plowed the ground. And they preached without even offering salvation for weeks upon end because the Bible taught people would have to wait because of their judgment. When they were freed, they would never want to go back to it. Now we can't leave somebody in suspense for 20 minutes. We teach doctrines of eternal security that do little more than give people a license for immorality because we're terrified that they may question their salvation. You and all the power of hell could never get me to question my salvation. Why do you think that that is the most dangerous thing that faces our youth? I'd say it's a whole lot more dangerous to give them the impression they're saved when they act like devils. Not mine. He's just in with the bad crowd. Yours is the bad crowd. You just don't know it because he's a liar at home just like he's a liar when he leaves your home. Do you know how I know that? I was that liar. And the single thing that kept me from getting saved the longest is I was told I was already saved and I could quote more scripture than any of the adults in my life. Just like the devil can. But when my heart was regenerated, when the word of God became flesh to me, When the personage of Jesus Christ showed up in my room, I've never been the same since. And you know who got upset with me first? Those that believed that I was already saved. They rejected this experience that actually resulted in regeneration in favor of the one that never saved anyone. They felt convicted that I no longer wanted to do the things they did and blatantly pointed out when we saw clear error, no matter who it was that was doing it, that they could not abide by. We've agreed to our seven points, these and no more. Because they love their sin. That's why. We're pretty sure that the Pharisees and Sadducees were wicked people even though you know nothing about them. But you're sure that our denominational leaders are all heroes. What would the first coming look like if it happened in this century? Who do you think Jesus would be rebuking? Oh, I'm sure he would just love our emergent church movement. I'm I'm just positive that your stone-dead, dry religion that has agreed to ignore the majority of the Word of God, he would just be totally in favor of because that's the kind of guy he was, right? Most of the men that Jesus rebuked had the Bible memorized. If it's hard for the righteous to enter the kingdom, what will be the outcome of the ungodly? Where is this preaching today? Say, well, pastor, they may not come back if you preach like that. If you have no interest in being regenerated, I don't want you to come back. But if you stand in here convicted a sinner and you want to be regenerated and you're you're desperate for God, we will fight right down into the depths of hell to snatch goats out that become sheep any day. We believe in going for sinners and going for the worst. Do you know why? Because John, the first chapter and 14th verse says, the Word became flesh. This is the Tanakh. You know why? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't written yet. You know why? Acts, Romans, and Corinthians didn't exist yet. The Word of God became flesh. What did that look like? It was the Tanakh. It was the story of the new creation. It was the story of sin, judgment, and redemption. It was the story of how to walk faithfully with God. And it became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
Have you ever considered that Jesus Christ is the living, breathing, moving, walking, perfect example of the perfect Torah? Is it possible to disregard God's law and love Jesus? I would say no. You might even say that you love Jesus, be staring at Him and not recognize Him. Because men who have the Tanakh memorized did not recognize Jesus, even though they were looking at the living, breathing, walking version of it. We have seen His glory. Have you seen the glory of the Lord? Have you personally had an encounter with the glory of the Lord? Are you settling for table scraps that somebody else told you about? Jesus Christ didn't die so you could go to church. Jesus Christ did not die so that you could become a reformed sinner. He died to credit you with righteousness so you could contact the very power and dominion of heaven. He died to take dead men and make them live. He died so that you could be regenerated, not learn a few churchy rules and pretend to be regenerated among the sheep. Are you not as frightened as I am that there are an awful lot of people in good churches, pastored by reasonable men that believe they're born again and there is absolutely no evidence that they've had any genuine encounter with God. Oh, they may have been touched at one time, but in the last decade, they haven't won a convert. In the last two decades, they've never discipled anyone. In the last three decades, not one stretching out for faith and healing. None of the works that accompany Christ. Should you have confidence if that's your position? Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll retreat into a system of rules while we're saying we're saved from the curse of the law. We'll say we're Christians because we don't eat what they eat or drink what they drink or smoke what they smoke or wear what they wear. We're Christians because we don't. Friends, that's the devil. We are Christians because of what we do, not what we don't. I've been preaching this message for almost 20 years and still, even among my closest friends, it's controversial. And it is so true that it can't be denied, but it is so ingrained in us that our responsibility to God is to do nothing that it's hard to get out of us. You have a responsibility to manifest God's Word in your flesh the same way the Word of God manifested in the flesh. He said, no, 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 that was the miraculous incarnation. Yes, he was the perfect representative. You're just a representative. Far from perfect. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to strive for perfection and try to represent the truth of the Scripture in your every action every day. And that happens as you do, not as you don't. So let me ask you, if instead of asking you if you were a Christian, what if I asked you, Are you a living, breathing, walking embodiment of the Word of God? Oh, that's too high of a standard. You're right, Christ is less of a standard. Is it easier to call yourself a Christian or a walking Bible? Oh, we're Christians. We're born in the United States. How much of His Word lives in you and shows up in your actions? So the thing is, Eric, I just don't recall. You don't have to. The Holy Ghost in you will take of what is His and give to you. It never depended on your mind. You need to go back to the Tanakh and learn that a horse is a vain hope for salvation. Oh, church, 
When he regenerates you, new things come out of you. When you learn the consequences of sin, you would die to be free of sin. And that's exactly what's required of you, that you die that you might live with him. Oh, if you knew the story of the Ketuvim, you would say, how, how, how can I make a difference in this generation? I have to. That's the part that fell to me because I've been regenerated. Oh, some of you burn with the Lord. Listen, compare your fire. Compare your hunger to these words in the next slide. This is John 14, starting in 30. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. If he was coming then, do you think he's here now? <laughs> I'm teasing a little bit there. The point here being Jesus had a dramatic collision with all the powers of hell. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. You want to know how much of a hold the devil has on you? You want to know whether he's got your pinky, your foot, or your whole neck in his arms? It has to do with whether you do what he tells you to do or you do some of what he tells you to do. Or whether you simply say, I will do it, and you never do it. <clears throat> I find all those varieties in Christ. You want to know how much of a hold the devil has on you? He had no hold on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus did exactly what the Father said. How much of what the Father says are you actually doing? Pastor, how can you talk to us like, you know, we're a remnant church. We are a fired up church. We're not like those people. Those people are not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. We could stand here and pat our back, ourselves on the back when compared to the Unitarians all day long or whatever group you despise. But let me ask you, how do you compare to Jesus Christ? And is there room to grow? Yes. Have you rested on your laurels? Let me say it a better way than that. Have you rested on His laurels? Because you never did much anyway, just like I didn't. I stand up and I preach a message like this. And I know that this word is a mirror staring at me. And always before me are my own failings. You know what your own failing is called? Sin. Christ-killing, miserable, wretched, hellish sin. How can you preach this? How can you believe this and have any level of sin in your life? Because you are working with all of your might and all of his strength that your heart would be inclined towards him. That your mind, will, and emotions would be totally sold out for him. That your flesh would actually carry out his will and you're dependent on him to eradicate sin in your life. Amen. And you refuse to declare a truce with it. The word of God become flesh. Now, I'm in a quandary because in this country when you preach for an hour, and I've just preached for an hour, everybody's eyes glaze over. And I mean, we just want to get to Luby's, you know? The most pressing issue of our day is where are we going to eat? And while we eat, how badly are we going to chew up the pastor that just gave his heart to us? That's what goes on after almost every Sunday. More pastors eating than fried chicken. See, and I'm in a quandary because I could stop here. I stop right now. Matthew, come up, sing a song. We could pray for you. We could pat you on the back and we could walk out. But I know something that you don't know. I was given something that's a blessing. 
that I don't think 10% of the people in the room know. Question is, would you want that or do you just want to go eat? Are you sure that you want it? See, because when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you get it. When what you hunger and thirst for is mediocrity, you get it till it comes out your nose. And 23,000 people can die in a single day. That's what it looks like when you crave something besides manna. That's what it looks like when you offend God. Have we ever considered that our golf game, our appointment that we said intentionally right after church so that there was no chance God's spirit could move and us be detained? I mean, dear God, we can't miss an appointment with man for an appointment with God. Have we ever considered how offensive that is to him? There's a pastor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana named Larry Stockstill that I admire greatly. I've not had the opportunity to meet him. We did buy his bus and run up a few speeding tickets in it. And uh, he got a letter and we, we got to pay those tickets and apologize. I had a dream that he, uh, he forgave me, so I'm going to count that good. And um, Larry is... Uh, a remarkable teacher. And he's successfully passed ministry for, on for generations. And um, I don't want to build a family dynasty. I just want to see the flame of the Lord carry brighter in the next century. I want to see the flame of the Lord carried brightly in our time. And I don't believe that because things are going wrong around us, we, we have to. I don't believe that. The reason I told you that Larry Stockstill story is because he did something that I heard about when I was 18. Then President Reagan called him to thank him for the work that he had done on behalf of anti-abortion rallies. They called it Heartbeat for Life. The President of the United States, an immensely popular President, it's hard to imagine that now, but a man that carried most of both parties, called and wanted to speak to him. The thing is, is he was in prayer. It was his normal prayer time. And when the secretary peeked in the door and saw Larry praying, she timidly said, the President of the United States is on the phone. And his response was, you tell him I'm in conference with the King of Kings, he'll have to call back. You said, that's arrogant. No, it's not. It honors God above men. Oh, can we honor God in this house today? I want to talk to you about Messianic miracles. These messianic miracles were unique ways in which Jesus Christ verified His deity to the Jewish people. And they're things that you may miss, particularly if you're not very well grounded in the Tanakh. See, the Tanakh teaches that when somebody is sick, a priest needs to inspect them to make sure they're sick. And if they get healed, you need to inspect them to make sure they're really healed. You can find that in Leviticus 13 and 14, mostly dealing with infectious skin diseases. And so there was a verification process in the religious leaders of the day uh, during the first century. When they heard that there was a miracle, and there were miracles going on before Jesus. That may surprise you. Honey, the circle drawer, was a miracle worker. Uh, Hanani Bendoza, a miracle worker. You can read about these men if you care to read Jewish literature. Honey the circle drawer would draw a circle on the ground and pray for rain and not leave until it rained. And the Jews of his day said they would have stoned him for such arrogance except it always rained when he prayed. Uh, Hanani Bendoza 
uh, had a gift for healing the sick. He prayed for people and they got healed. He said, how could that be? They're Jews and they didn't believe in Jesus. Jesus had not arrived yet. And they believed in all that they knew to believe in. And they stretched out and worked in faith. God will meet you right where you are. And so a verification process had been established. Number one, you had to know that they were sick. Number two, that they had indeed been healed. And then number three, you need to find out who did this, right? Because these were signs that God was working with them. This unique verification process also had these couple elements. Move to the next slide for me. Thank you. They had methods of investigation. The methods of investigation had to do with silent observation. Now, on a Sunday morning, that's not hard for you. Silent observation is what Americans like to do. But then they had to question to determine the veracity of the event. In other words, they showed up and they withheld judgment. They observed and they watched. And then they had to push and probe because Solomon had said, the first one to present his case seems right until another appears. So the first thing they did was they watched carefully to see what is the fruit on this tree. The second thing that they did is they poked and prodded with questions to see whether it really was what it looked like. Doesn't that make altogether a whole lot of sense? Moving on from there. There happened to be a few miracles that they had not seen since the inception of Israel. Now God wrote about them in His Word. Cleansing of a leper is Leviticus 14. But ever since Miriam got cleansed, Remember, God spit in her face and something like leprosy came on her. She was unclean for seven days. Moses prayed for her. You've read the book of Numbers, right? You've got it memorized since you were five. And, um, And since that event, Israel had never had a recorded healing of a leper. You say, well, wait a minute, Eric. I know very well because I love the Older Testament that Naaman was healed. Naaman was a Syrian. He, he, was, he was not an Israelite. And Elijah healed him, not somebody from the priesthood at the temple. And so what this meant was you practiced your whole life for certain sacrifices, detailed in Leviticus 14, but you never saw them. Kind of like the church today. Practice for all kinds of things that you never actually expect to see. So they developed an excuse, just like the church today, you know. I mean, there are great learned Bible teachers that have explained away the existence of miracles for no other reason than they don't see them, okay? Well, they did the same thing. They said, you know what happens? When somebody's a leper, um, God told us the sacrifice to offer, not because we could heal them, but when Messiah comes, Messiah will be able to heal them. So it's kind of a not now, but later kind of faith, you know? Kind of like is prevalent right now in the church. Uh, probably we're not going to see it now, but I'm sure at the resurrection it will occur. You know, we, we hear that all the time. Or God can heal him, but, you know, who knows whether he, he will. It, it, it really is a tremendously cowardice approach to being an ambassador for the kingdom of God. I mean, can you imagine the ambassador of the United States shows up in Russia and says, well, we know the United States could do something about this evil wall, but uh, who knows whether they will. What do you think the response from Gorbachev would have been? Man, do you remember when we had national leaders who stood up on national television and said things like, tear down this evil wall. Now we build evil all around us. It's a blanket that covers us. So, leprosy. In Luke 5, you have the details of a leper being healed. 
And when this leper is healed, it's an interesting thing because you notice things like, hey, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And you go, what's that all about? It was a way for the leper to say, I think you're different than everybody else here. I don't think that you're just somebody adopted by God. I don't think you're just one of the brothers. I think you're Messiah. How interesting that lepers recognize his Messiahship before anybody else does. And he looked at him and said, I am willing. Oh, man, you know what happens when you recognize your condition and recognize his? He'll bridge the gap between the two. Oh, I, I, did you hear me? If you can recognize your position in his. So you know what happens? He says, uh, don't tell anybody. Instead, go, go to the temple and offer the offering. Because for the first time in thousand years, they're going to make an offering that no priest had done, but they'd all talked about. Do you think that would start a discussion at the temple? Hey, this guy says he was healed. It launched an investigation. So that in Mark 2, you can read about it. They're debating about whether God can forgive sins or only a man can forgive sins or how that works and healing a disabled man. But the reason that the Jewish leadership is there on the scene is not because of a disabled man Jesus was going to heal. It's because of the leper that he did heal. And the scripture actually records their thoughts. In Mark 2, 6, it says, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. For who can forgive sins but God alone? Now think on this for a minute, saints. He's just healed the leper. The leper recognized him as Messiah. At the temple, there's now offerings being made going, wait, I thought we weren't supposed to be able to do this till Messiah comes. And Jesus is talking about forgiving sins and the religious leadership is there listening. They're judging. They're trying to decide, is this Messiah? Are you following me so far? The first messianic miracle that Jesus did not the first miracle, the first miracle that they believed only Messiah could do was the healing of a leper. If you go to Mark 9, or at least take a note for Mark 9, while many of you may not know the Older Testament very well, most of you have read the Gospel of Mark. The Jewish nation had cast out demons. This is behind the discussion when they blame Jesus for using uh, Beelzebub to cast out demons. And he says, then how do your people do it? He said, how could they do it? Because they were the people of God. We miss that. Because they were adopted as sons. Because they were a new creation. Because all of those things, no difference between them and us except the fulfillment of the ages has come upon us. But the Jews had never cast out a demon that was mute or caused the person to be mute what King James would call a demon of dumbness. It's the only time I like to quote King James. A demon of dumbness. It's fun to say. Would you like to say it with me? A demon of dumbness. So they had never cast that out. And in Mark 9, Jesus' disciples couldn't either. And there's a lot of reasons in Jewish writings why they thought you couldn't cast out a, a demon of dumbness. But the biggest was they believed that you had to do this with a formula because they're pretty heavy on tradition. Not a problem in the church today, of course. But they were pretty heavy on tradition. They said, you know... We, uh, we know that this can be done, but the way that it worked for so-and-so 200 years ago was they had to ask the demon what his name was. They had to ask the demon how he got there. And then they had to cast the demon out by name. And how do you do that if you can't get him to talk? I kid you not, that was the teaching in the first century. It's about as retarded as deciding that somebody's doctrine was perfect 300 years ago and let that cage you from doing anything new today. Oh, 
but let's talk about the Jews. Everybody would rather talk about their problems than ours, right? So in Mark 9, Jesus, of course, cast this devil out. And in Matthew 12, 22 through 23, the religious leadership's questions are recorded. The people are saying of this messianic miracle, could this really be? Could this be the son of David? Because they're seeing him do things that only the Messiah would do. They're not just observing now. They're questioning him. They're having a full-scale debate with him and they're embarrassed every time they do. Are you following me? See, the reason that we don't just ask you when you walk through the door, are you regenerated? Are you full of the... We want you to be able to have silent observation. Don't get me wrong. I'm okay with you if you're lost and you know you're lost, hanging out on the outside of the crowd, just checking it out to see what's going on. But at some point, you're going to have to have the courage to question, to interact, to see so that you can make a decision. And I have no interest in simply farming people here so that we can say that we have some great work going on when there's no great work going on inside. I'm not interested in that. But we do want to see people who simply get to observe and say, are these guys really what they preach? Is Jesus all that they say he is? Because at some point when you start to ask those questions, you know what it's going to lead you to do? Have an encounter with the Almighty God. But you'll have to overcome your own pride and fear. You may even have to overcome what you've been told about Jesus by men. I'm going to ask you what Jesus said. I'm going to say, did you hear that from someone else or did Jesus tell you it? You follow me? Okay. Now, after we move on from a leper to a dumb demon, a man born blind, apparently Jews had successfully healed people that were blind, but never someone born blind. And in John 9, do you remember the extent to which they go on questioning? Number one, Jesus' disciples say, is this guy this way because of his sin or somebody else's? And Jesus said, neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed. You don't know how true what he said is. Not in all sickness at all times, that's the only reason for sickness. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this guy was born this way so that he would meet me on this day and I could show y'all I am Messiah. Oh, what an honor in that case. Can you not bear an infirmity for a little while since he bears yours for an eternity? Oh, my goodness. And, and do you remember how upset the leadership was? In John 9, they go find the guy's parents. I mean, they want to know, was he really born blind? Because this is getting hairy now. I guess that's kind of a colloquialism. This is getting serious now. Third messianic miracle, and it's verified. And do you remember? They discount the witness. They say you were steeped in sin from birth. Three times. That takes us to the fourth messianic miracle. In John 11, 1 through 17, Jesus learns that Lazarus has been dead, and he intentionally waits. Verse 17 says that it had been four days. That's when Jesus decides to go. Do you know why? There had been resurrections throughout Israeli history. Uh, in fact, a man who had just died was thrown on Elijah's bones and he came back to life. There are resurrections in the Hebrew faith because there's no difference between God then and God now. There's no difference between the older and the newer scriptures. In fact, it's one scripture. You've just been sold a lie. Jesus intentionally waited because the teaching of the time was, and I'm not saying it's right, I'm simply saying it was a teaching, 
was that a, a spirit of a man hovered around the body for up to three days. But after three days, on the fourth day, nobody could be raised. Do you know why they thought that? Because they had never seen it done. It's amazing the number of things we accept that cannot happen simply because we've never seen it done. Until, of course, it's done. I was a cessationist. Does that surprise you? I was a cessationist that argued cessationism along a perfect cascading argument. I was taught it. I'm good at it. Uh, if you want to do it just for an intellectual exercise, exercise, I can do it with any of you. The problem is I got filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke in other tongues. So the argument no longer held validity for me because I had experienced now what I previously had not experienced and didn't believe exist. So I just don't know why God would do it. You don't have to know. Uh, it doesn't have to agree with you. You know what? If it happens to you, you will know it's real. Until it does happen to you, then I suppose you can sit back a skeptic. But I've never seen skeptics really uh, do much for God. Jesus waited for Lazarus to be dead four days. And in John 11, 38 through 53, he of course raises Lazarus from the dead. And you know, the leaders have a conversation that is recorded in Scripture. And in John 11 and verse 53... They come to a conclusion. After saying, if we allow this man to go on like this, he's going to fill the whole world with his teaching. They decided that they had to kill him. It's funny, when confronted with new doctrine, when confronted with new truth, when your borders are stretched by the living, breathing Word of God, when you are forced to become the new wineskin that you say that you are, is your conclusion simply to kill the message, to ignore it and go about your business and say, well, I've always been what grandma and granddad and a bunch of other dead people are? Or do you have to interact with what you now know is real? See, Jesus put the whole Jewish nation that had that fantastic educational system I told you about and a serious love for the, for the Word into a particular quandary. You read about it, you diligently search the Scriptures thinking that by them you have eternal life, but now I'm the living, breathing Scripture standing here and you won't come to me. And I'm doing the things that you can't do because you don't really believe. And what is your response to that? And they decided to kill him. You know, we can't change what some men did in the first century with Jesus, but you can certainly change what you do with him now. That question lies before you. I never saw a man who didn't believe in healing get someone healed. I never saw a man who didn't believe in speaking in other tongues speak in other tongues. I never saw a man who didn't believe in prophecy prophesy. In fact, I'm pretty sure that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Church, there is a battle going on. Do you want to be trained in righteousness? Do you really want to be trained in righteousness? This is our last scripture for the day. Those of you that were not excited about any other part of this message will be excited that we're at the last scripture. The rest of you, hopefully, in turning to John 14, in verse 9, will find this as inspiring as I do. By the way, if you're new to the church, I do love you. In our house, when we love each other, we show it by telling each other the truth. 
I don't think it's very loving for somebody's fly to be down and you not tell them. I don't think it's very loving for somebody to have some foreign matter hanging off of their nose and you not tell them. I don't think it's very loving to know that somebody has a death wound and you walk by for fear that you'll offend them for helping them with their death wound. If you are new to this church, I'm going to say observe as long as you want to. At some point, ask all the questions that you want. Jesus Christ can handle the debate. And in the end, what you do with this word is a whole lot more important than what you think of me or any of the other leaders in this church. If you don't like me, there's two others to choose from. If you don't like them, our best-looking elder is here today. If you don't like him, you should probably just leave. And I don't want you to leave. But can you imagine not liking Bosch? In John 14, starting in verse 9. Do you think it's strange that we mention leaving? I had lunch with a man that's becoming a dear friend. I have serious high hopes for his entire life. And he found it interesting that that challenge is a part of our message. Since every other church seems to be begging you to stay, no matter what it costs, and lowering the standard every moment so that nobody really has to rise to meet anything, I find it refreshing to go ahead and just give you a shove and say, you don't want to leave too, do you? Because I believe if you find the presence of God here, nothing could tear you away from it. And if you don't feel the presence of God here, I have no interest in you being here. What are we going to do? We sit and lie to each other for the rest of our lives? We're going to have to spend eternity with each other. We might as well spend it with those that uh, we enjoy being in the presence of God with now. Huh? John 14, starting in verse 9. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. See, when Philip was interacting with Jesus, it was the same as interacting with God. When people are interacting with you, who are they really interacting with? Is it just you? Or do you represent God Almighty? Could you ever imagine saying, when I speak to you, I'm speaking the very words of God. And what you think about him will be reflected in how you treat me. Because Jesus and Peter both said those things about us. I want you to be representatives of God Almighty. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of... If Jesus could say that, the question is, should we be able to say it? Men like R.C. Sproul, who is smarter than... He's forgotten more than I've ever known, but he's also forgotten too much. They say, no, if you could do a miracle, you could write a Bible, so you can't do miracles. Like he's too smart by half. He's reasoned himself right out of the truth. Jesus said, if you don't believe me, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles. We've adopted a message that basically says, do what I say, don't do what I do. Jesus actually goes so far as to say, if you don't believe me, believe what I do. Let's keep reading. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. Well, just take out your black highlighter. That's just too convicting. It can't be true. It had to die out in some other dispensation. Certainly when the last apostle, or at least their wives, the epistles died. I mean, y'all not listening. 
What if that never died out? What if the truth of the scripture is our works are supposed to speak louder than our words? What if Jesus meant it when he said, let your light shine before men that they might glorify your Father in heaven when they see your good deeds? What if he meant it when he said through the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Ephesians in the second chapter when he said who prepared good works in advance for you to do? What if he meant for you to actually do the works that he did? What if he laid some of them out for you to do? But you are insistent that God could do it one day if he wanted to do it. I think it's very important that we rise to the challenge and believe now is the time. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and say it with me. I will do it. Ask yourself, is Jesus Christ a liar? Then we must not believe him. I, for one, intend to start. I repent right now publicly. I believe it. I'm going to do it. I know one thing for sure. Nobody gets healed when you don't try. I know that. And I may fall on my face many times, and you might too. We're poor ambassadors, but there's always the hope that Christ will be formed in us and will mature. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Do you mean to tell me he didn't just leave us his word? He actually would take the substance that was in him and put that in you and it would be like the best advocate, the best attorney, the best counselor, the best advisor you ever had? The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. Do you know how the Holy Spirit lived with them with the Torah? He was the power in the Tanakh to make those words come alive and change their hearts. He was the power in the Tanakh to make the reality of sin and judgment and forgiveness come together in the words of the prophets. He was the power of God for you to live a life in the historical context of your times. And they knew that. They saw God with them because His Word was with them, just like the church today. But Jesus is going one step further. He's saying, not just the word with you, not just the spirit beside you. I'm going to engrave it upon your hearts. I'm going to take my presence and put it inside of you. It's exactly what Ezekiel 36 said. It is exactly what the prophecies had said. What had been external and with you would now be inside of you so that you would not be dependent on someone to teach you. And yet we find ourselves arguing those very same things sitting here today. Could you stand to your feet with me?